I am vengeance. I am the night. I am also a podcast. I am a podcast. 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 Oh! It's a show. It's a show. Audio only, though. What is it about? If you have time, I can tell you that it is a podcast about that many Batman podcasts. Uh, what did you want me to say in this part? It's a show! Yeah. Yeah! <laughs> I am a podcast. Whoa! Hey! Interviews with fans and people, people who Welcome to another Batman the Animated Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Michael, and you're listening to an audio variety show for your ears about the legendary 1990s cartoon Batman the Animated Series. Today's sponsor, the Gotham City Police Truck. Shaped like a loaf of bread, tastes like a truck. Police Truck! Today's a great episode for you deep-cut Batman fans out there. Series director Dan Reba will be chatting Batgirl Returns, which is the final episode of the original animated series, and sharing many fun behind-the-scenes stories along the way. Then I'll be sitting down with art director Rustam Hasanov, who will be joining us to dive into the details of the episode. So, without further ado... Today's episode, Batgirl Returns. A cat statue is stolen from a university museum. Batman's out of town, and it's up to Batgirl to track down the thief. While Robin believes all clues point to Catwoman, Batgirl is skeptical and teams up with a vigilante to investigate, and they discover another crook behind the crime. But can Catwoman be trusted? The answer? Well, kind of. Original air date, November 12th, 1994. Written by Michael Reeves and Bryn Stevens. Directed by Dan Reba. Music composed by Harvey R. Cohen with animation by Dong Yang. Featuring Melissa Gilbert as Batgirl, the first of three voices throughout the series, Adrian Barbeau as Catwoman, and Ed Asner as Roland Daggett. Today's guest, Dan Reba. Dan started on Batman as a character designer and board artist, but quickly became a director and stayed with Bruce Timm and the gang all the way through Justice League Unlimited. He currently works on Netflix's Dino Trucks and is one of my very favorite interviews to date. Seriously, the guy came dressed in his old new Batman Adventures crew shirt, which features Batgirl to get really nerdy, which is not the logo that they ended up with, uh, carrying a bag full of designs, sketches, storyboards, timing sheets, anything and everything you wanted to see from the animated series. He was more than willing to talk every detail, and he was such a nice, cool guy. I think you guys are going to enjoy this one. So, let's get to it. So great to finally have you on. We've chatted a little bit over like the last year, and it's finally happening. Yes. I have so much I want to talk to you about, but we only have so much time. Okay. So I figured we could start with just your background. Where did you grow up? What were your influences? Uh, Ah, good one. Uh, I grew up in uh, uh, Arlington, Virginia, um, the northern Virginia area, Washington, D.C., and then... uh, 
went to uh, School of Visual Arts in New York at the best possible time. Um, Harvey Kurtzman was teaching there. Will Eisner was teaching there. And Art Spiegelman. And this was when Art Spiegelman was beginning Mouse and sharing it with the students. That's incredible. It It was remarkable. Do you remember what your first thoughts were when you saw mouse as it was being created uh well (laughs) you know it was it was amazing and and you were impressed you were just it was uh remarkably personal so it's you'd never even seen anything like this i mean eisner had just done contract with god and that was amazing but this was something so personal it was so interesting to see the other thing though was that when he was telling us oh this is a 10-year project we thought he was out of his mind you thought, oh, we'll never get this done. I mean, this is crazy. How yeah. can you possibly have a ten-year project? And you know, and he did it, and he finished it, obviously. And and and, but we had no. I really didn't uh, feel that surprised when it won a Pulitzer when it got the critical acclaim because I, I, you could see that this was something outstanding. That you're watching history in the making here. That this is some kind of, this is going to make an impact. And. Uh, and it did. So it was it was pretty cool. That's amazing. So it was neat. So were you I mean, were you like an avid comic book reader and I, superhero fan it, growing up? Yeah, yeah. I I, I uh, read everything. Um, mostly Marvel actually, but as a kid most a lot of DC. Um, and I say that because, you know, yes, I love the Spider Man and the Fantastic Four and Kirby. All of that stuff was just such a huge influence. But I also loved what was going on with Batman. Um, I, I was reading Batman comics. My brother, older brother was a comic collector, and so I was exposed to stuff when I was really little. So I would see the Batman comics before I could read. Mm. So I was primed for the TV show. I was six when it came out, and, and it, was, it was real to me. Um, so I, 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 was, I, I knew about Batman before the show, so I was excited. Um, it was exactly for me. It was made for me. Yeah. So you know, but then shortly after, I, I saw the feature in the, in the in the theaters and noticed people laughing at it, and that really bothered me. And then I found a paperback that had an origin story where he was all mysterious and he had this long black costume with the long ears and and the cape that swept up, and it was so impressive to me that I thought, why aren't they doing this in the comics? This is what Batman should be. He should be scary and cool. And I was eight when that thought, you know, when I when it's sort of like the whole idea of the silly Batman kind of like lost its spell on. Yeah, me. I was very young, and then Neil Adams came along and started fulfilling my wishes and started making Batman the way I wanted him to see him. So I kind of turned my back on the funny Batman for a little while until high, I think high school when they started rerunning it again, and I kind of got the joke and I. I kind of accepted it again, and it was fun. So, but for a long time, I was like, "Oh, I hate that! Oh, I hate that! That funny stuff. People are making fun of him." I got back into it though. I really enjoy it. I liked all Batman, um, serious or funny, you know. Um, and then, of course, there was Swamp Thing. That the, you know, all these things that the Shadow. I, I was totally into all of that stuff. So I couldn't really call myself Marvel or DC because there was stuff that I liked on both sides. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. How did you transition? Like, when did you decide, like, this is what I want to do as a career? Um, You know, it was like when I'm drawing all the time, watching cartoons, drawing at the same time. Um, And and then uh, 
realizing that I'm not good at anything else. There's nothing else that really interests me. I couldn't decide between animation and, and comic books. I thought I was going to be a comic book artist. Um, and, and at one point when I talk about, I, I mentioned animation to my dad. My dad said, you know, I have a cousin that's teaching in New York. I'm like, what, what do you mean? What is he teaching? He's teaching animation. What? <laughs> Somebody, yeah, and his dad was the first animator in Spain. So Gil Moret was uh, teaching animation. Uh, he had done some stuff at, at Paramount and, and was doing a lot of industrial films and things like that. But he was teaching at School of Visual Arts. Mm-hmm. So we went to visit, and, and there I saw you know, that Eisner was teaching there and Kurtzman. And I just, my head exploded and told my best friend who we didn't know where he wanted to go either. And, and we realized that that's where we're going. We're going to go to that school. And we both did. We found an apartment in New York. We, you know, we'd been lifelong friends since three, doing comics and films together. That's, you know, Kirk Moselle, you know, and he's in advertising now. Uh, he, he, he changed his mind <laughs> in school and went into advertising instead of either comics or illustration. And I, and I stayed in, in, uh, in, in, this, in this world, you know. Did it feel weird to have him leave that world? Like, did it feel like you were in it together and then that split off was... I, I, at least I feel like when I know people who have, like, committed a little bit to an art and then they're like, no, it's not for me, but it's like, oh, but you're talented. <laughs> yeah, but... Yes. But I also saw that, that, you know, his talents were somewhere else, too. Uh-huh. You know, that that's really what he was good at. And, and I'm like, you know, I, that's what speaks to him. And uh, initially, I was sort of like, oh, "Come on, advertising!" And now I get it. I understand what advertising is. It's, yeah, it, it is. It is. There's nothing wrong with that. It's it's a very important thing for the industry. It's and it's very artistic. So there's there's it's a good way of expressing yourself, really. So how, from college, uh, after that, when did you get your first job? Uh, immediately, I came out to California, uh, and I got a, 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 I was freelancing. Uh, cleanups for a Winnie the Pooh project. Um, the fellow that, uh, um, Dave Bennett, who was working at Rick Reiner Productions and they, Disney had farmed it out to them. He, um, I showed my, my, there was a little convention kind of get together, a CAPS meeting and uh, Dave Stevens was there and Scott Shaw and that's this fellow and Jack Kirby. <laughs> and, and, uh, and so I showed my portfolio or talked to, to Scott Shaw about it. He said, you know, I think this guy over here is looking for people. You should show his port- your portfolio to him. So I did. And he gave me some work doing cleanup, animation cleanup work on the Swinney the Pooh project. So that's my first actual paying job. Um, and then after that ended, uh, I was looking for, I, I always heard from, from people at school who would come back to visit that storyboarding was like the most um, secure job in animation. Um, and so that's what I was like, I'm going to be a storyboard artist. That's what I'm going to do. And uh, looked for work at Filmation and then at Ruby Spears. And they hired me uh, at Ruby Spears. Uh, and... Um, and it was great because I didn't realize at the time that that was kind of like uh, the fellow that ran the, the the division was John Dorman, and his best friend is Jim Woodring, the 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 artist, the, the the underground, you know, you know, it's like Jim Magazine. He was there at the time, right? Those are just cool people, <laughs> very, very, and like coming in and out of the door all the time was like Doug Wildey who created. Johnny Quest and Shit. 
and you know, just a phenomenal artist. And so you were exposed to a lot Peavy, of people. Peavy, <laughs> Dave Stephens, you know, the Rocketeer, you know, and and he and you know, so so. Uh, and and Jack Kirby would show up all the time doing character designs and presentation. What was Kirby like? Kirby was awesome. He was, you know, he's older at the time, so he's you know, but <sighs> he's so mythic to me. So <laughs> any sort of connection, you know, the thing about him was that he just made you feel good because you're in the presence of somebody who you're in awe of who formed your childhood and and you're working on presentation pieces inking things that I wasn't really equipped <laughs> you know it was this, it was it was really daunting and he was so encouraging and so sweet and just open to answer any questions and you know and and of course I, I didn't know what to ask him you know I I think the only thing that I remember asking him was why Don Rickles <laughs> you know why? Why did you do a Don Rickles story? And they're like Don Rickles and Goody Rickles. Yeah, exactly. Like, it was like, exactly. And he said, you know, I was watching TV. I saw him in the Tonight Show, and I thought I'd like to write for him. I, I you know, so that's why, why he did it. Um, and and at that time, it wasn't that far out of the spectrum. DC had just done, you know, Jerry Lewis comics and Bob Hope comics, and the idea of doing a, a comic with Don Rickles was not that ridiculous. It was only about. You know, two or three years outside of the stuff they were actually publishing. Yeah. So, you know, it made perfect sense. So that's that's why. That's so cool. I, and I mean, later you guys in Superman, you modeled what Dan Turpin after Kirby. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is so cool. That was. That was awesome. And, and what was really neat was um, Joe Bologna that did the voice sounded just like him. And I got chills um, hearing him at the recording booth because it really was like when you see him animated and you hear the voice, it it really was him. That's that's what Kirby was like. Um, a little nicer though. <laughs> Dan Turpin was a little tough, a little brash, <laughs> a little brash. You know, Kirby. You know, Kirby was really sweet. Kirby was really sweet. Um, it, it was nice, and his and his wife Roz was like she was the person that'd come in and negotiate the deals for him because mm-hmm. he was sort of like so she would leave him with the children and let him talk you know and like while she went and did the business because well, she she was very protective and nurturing and it was a partnership it was really a partnership and she was very protective of him mm. so she'd go in and negotiate the deals and Jack would be telling stories about comics and World War II and stuff and. It was awesome. That's pretty cool. Yeah. He oh, hated Patton. <laughs> <laughs> and that be, I mean, I think that led to like one of the most emotionally resonant scenes in the whole like DC animated oh, universe. Absolutely. Like, that Apocalypse and, and that, Now or was that, it Legacy? No, that was Apocalypse, Apocalypse Now, now too. And, and that was actually based on Jack Kirby's funeral, which Bruce and I and a bunch of us went to. Um, and, and it was, and the idea of having all of this sort of guest stars of his world and people that he created kind of was based on the fact that so many people there in comics were there. It was you so know, moving. Stan Lee was there and I know Tom Hatton. I'm like, what the guy who used to do the Popeye show here. I was, what's Tom Hatton doing at Jack Kirby's funeral? That's awesome. Well, I mean, Kirby did animate Popeye. I mean, he did it in between for Popeye. So maybe that's it. I, but no, he just knew him. He didn't know that. He just was there because he was Jack Kirby. So it's amazing. It was amazing. And, um, and very moving. And so, yeah, we kind of, 
you know, Dan Turpin wasn't supposed to die. We were supposed to bring him back. Really? Oh, yeah. When did you decide to kill off the character? Well, what happened was that um, we had actually set up the, the fact that the Omega Beams transport you to Apocalypse, because we had done that with Ugly Mannheim. Before. Yeah. So we'd, they don't necessarily kill you. So the idea was then later on down, when we bring back the Apocalypse stuff and we go there, and Superman goes and finds him in the pits and brings him back. and you know. But what happened was that the, the funeral was so moving and the, the tribute to Jack was so moving that we felt like if we brought him back, it would sort of debase that. It would lower, it would, it would kind of take away from that. Just undercut the resonance of it? Absolutely. Well, and, also and we it made Darkseid so much more of a, so, a force in the show. Absolutely. So it's like, no, you know, so it was kind of funny because I think the network let us do it because they knew he didn't necessarily die. But then we did. <laughs> it's like, then we killed him after. And then they just kind of forgot about they, it? They or? forgot about it. It was like, eh, whatever. You know. That seems to be how some notes go. It's like, yeah. well, if you just get away with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's that's exactly. In fact, and this is you know, that's an example, but when we get to that. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, uh, I mean, just for the listeners, you brought so many great boards and scripts with you. This this is actually uh, our, our uh, BSMP notes for, for Baby Doll. We weren't allowed to actually publish them in the book. Fox wouldn't allow us to publish really? them. So so Paul had to get around that by having the memos that he would write to Alan or Alan to him about what the network wants and what our solutions are. So that's essentially what this is. So so this is actually with Bruce's notes on them, saying, please ask the producers to, to, to use one of our Dark Deco machine gun models. These look too realistic. And Bruce's note there was argue. Uh, oh, please do not... Oh, actually, that one didn't have an... We're, we just, you know, go with whatever models that they... Our models are different, so we showed them that. Uh, please do not have baby hit Spunky in the face. It's like, <laughs> argue that. Uh, uh, caution that the debris does not appear to be hitting the people. Um, shoot! A, uh, uh, it will not be acceptable for the gun barrel to pop out of baby dolls. Uh, uh, out of uh, out of baby uh, baby's doll. And then and then we actually talked them into it. So shoot it at the wall. Uh, it's okay. Um, Batman should not hit the skinny man in the face. Argue that. <laughs> that one is Miriam very confusing. Should not, it should not kick Batman in the head. Okay. <laughs> baby should not hit Batman in the head with Mr. Happy Head. Argue. Uh, it will not be acceptable for Baby to kick Batman in the face. Argue. <laughs> so it's like... So, and the glass from the mirror should not fly outward when Baby breaks them. This could cascade... Um, they could cascade down. Uh, uh, as on page 144, center frame, and argue. So that was our... A lot of argues. That was a lot of argues. Did you get away with it most of the time? Uh, we, a lot of them we did. And, and there were compromises that we'd, we'd find that we didn't do exactly what they asked for, but at least we, we paid attention and, yeah. and we took their, their notes into consideration. That was actually really mild considering what Saturday morning had been like before that. The, uh, the note of don't hit them in the face, it's like, wait, you know, in the past... Yeah, because I was working at Ruby Spears when we were doing so. You weren't allowed to even mention a gun, <laughs> let alone show one. No gun or like even like an impact. It and felt an like. impact was like, yeah. So it was, BSNP was really unreasonable when it came to this stuff. So that's why Batman was such a revolution when it came out, because we really didn't expect any kind of fighting allowed at all. How did you? How do you think you guys got away with it? Because I think there are a bunch of you know there were other action cartoons at the same time that did not get away with it. Like you watch a lot of the Marvel stuff, like right, it's not in there. It's well, lasers. 
we got away with it because we stylized the guns a little bit, so mm-hmm. they looked they, they didn't look too realistic, um, and and that was it. That was basically it. And I don't think we actually were able to shoot people. Uh, we didn't actually have a lot of people getting shot. It was like the machine guns would miss or shoot the walls or stuff like that. Um, and then the punching was always sort of we we would divert them. We didn't we didn't actually punch them in the face. We would mm-hmm. always punch in the chest or at camera. And that was our way of getting around, you know, the violence was at camera a lot of the times. And uh, and that's really, you know, that was Fox. They let us do that because they knew that the TV, the, the movie was big. And they knew that Batman has to be serious. He has to have conflict. And they were going to push it. We realized, okay, we can get away with this now. This is, it's a different world. Kids kind of know that people fight. And this is like if you water it down too much then it's no longer batman so let's back up for a second how did you get involved with batman the animated series ah let's see okay uh after ruby spears i worked at deke for a long time and kevin altieri had been working there i was good friends with him right he's a storyboard artist on the show as well as i think he directed a little bit He directed quite a bit quite a bit Directed some phenomenal shows oh yeah he directed on leather wings he's oh yeah never what am i talking about brilliant brilliant director we chatted a little bit i think about showdown Oh yeah, well he kind of co-wrote that too. Yeah, so, that's what I so, he, he so wrote it a little. He, bit. he wrote he he, he kind of worked, worked that out with Bruce. He kind of came up with the story and and yeah, no, Showdown was brilliant. Yeah, yeah his like his boards were incredible that he his brought in too. His boards were incredible, and he's just he's just a phenomenal he, tour de, He's just a, a force of nature. And he surfs. <laughs> and he surfs. He <laughs> just, he's, he, yes. So what happened? Uh, I worked with him for for several years at um, Kid Video. And then later on on Ghostbusters, and um, and then there was a little break. I I went to uh, I worked at TMS for a little bit. We were working on a uh, I was working with with Richard Rainus, who was at Deke before, and he was at TMS. We were doing this. Uh, and TMS is one of the animation studios. Yes, yes. where they also worked on Batman. Exactly, but then they were working. They were trying to set up their own studio. They had TMS Entertainment, and they had done Bionic Six and. Um, uh, Galaxy High and a few other things. Okay, right. and um, what what they were trying to do was get they, they had done a feature of Little Nemo in Slumberland, and they wanted to do a TV version. So we were, I was working on the crew working on that, and I think Kevin had gone to Disney at that point. I think he was working on on, on uh, story stuff at Disney, and uh, what had happened? Uh, the the Nemo thing fell through just. Just as Bruce and Eric over on on Tiny Toons were developing Batman, they'd done their presentation. The video had leaked out to the industry, and there were pirates of it all over town. What a great leak. No kidding. (laughs) So I got one from a friend, and I just, I was like, oh man, I'm so mad because I'm stuck on this Nemo show, and I'd love to work on this Batman thing. And then the Nemo show ended. Um, They pulled a plug on it. And I got a call from Kevin. I'm like, well, who do I know over there? Well, I know Bruce because I, I knew him a little tiny bit. How did you meet him? Uh, he was working on Beanie and Cecil when oh, I was working okay. on Elf. And Paul Dini and worked, Paul on, Dini Beanie worked on, on Beanie and Cecil, Cecil too. Well. And, and I knew Paul a little tiny bit from Ruby Spears a little bit before. He was there too. Okay. But mostly I knew him from, from the Beanie and Cecil era, you know, stuff. And I didn't work on Beanie and Cecil, but I was so in awe of... John Kay and the whole group that was working there um, that I was I would hang out and just watch Bruce draw because it, it 
again, just incredible talent. And I, I remember, you know, he'd, he'd be sitting there boarding with a cigarette in his mouth. And, and I would, I just kind of, hey, can I, can I just, you know, I know it's kind of creepy, but do you mind if I just watch you draw? <laughs> you know, he's like, yeah, knock yourself out. You know, it's so funny. So, so, you know, I, I, so I don't know if he remembered that when he saw my portfolio, but, but then Kevin, you know, um, wanted me in on Batman, gave me a call and said, yeah, no, you gotta, you gotta, so he gave me the number and I called up uh, and, and got an interview with Bruce and, um, and I wanted to board on the show initially, but Bruce was very, um, uh, he needed character designers. So that's, and it's funny cause I'd already directed at Deke. I directed Alf and, and a couple other things, Mario brothers and stuff, but I knew how much work directing is, uh-huh. and I didn't want to. Um, I was getting, I was getting married, and I, did, I was planning for a wedding, and I knew that that was just going to be like very involved. So I thought, you know what? If I just like go in as a as a board guy, it's not as it's not as much, you know, uh, you're just not there all the time like you are when you're directing. And um, but they pulled me in. <laughs> thank god you know but but uh but bruce wanted me on characters because he was really needing uh, character people so you started so i started strictly doing strictly characters, characters and, so what, what was that process well like where uh, did you start uh you know i was in the room with the board guys and so there was like bouncing forth back and forth between the leather wings i helped clean up boards while i was doing character designs um and uh the, the, like we were trying to like really get Man Bat in shape, and we couldn't quite. Bruce really wanted a monster. He wanted it to be very feral and monstrous. I did a bunch of sketches, um, and they weren't quite there. The one thing that I contributed to the character, though, was that I really hated the way his hands and wings worked in the comics. I thought it was really unrealistic the way that the the wings sort of jut out of his out of his wrist I thought that, that that it's no bearing on any kind of real anatomy and, and what a bat is yeah. so I, I kind of said look Bruce let's let's have the wings actually be part of his hands and then he can still have like his fingers grab things but his wings will actually be attached to his and Bruce liked that idea so that at least carried through but after uh, Kevin Nolan and uh, I, I don't think Mignola did a man bat I know that he, he did Mr. Freeze and we ended up sticking with that one. And Kevin Nolan did a version of Robin that pretty much stuck. Oh, um, cool! So, so though you know, we, we had to you know filter through the style, but it was pretty much his. That's his drawing that kind of ended up being on our model. Um, I mean, cleaned up into Bruce's style. Um, and uh, but uh, a fellow named Mike Kim came aboard, and he was doing character designs, and he ended up doing the the the, the final Man Bat. But it was like based on stuff that everyone had done. Kind of. That's so cool. So that it was that collaborative, even in the character oh, yeah. design stage. But mostly, I was doing uh, turns on characters that Bruce was creating. So I was kind of just turning Mister Freeze or redressing them and stuff like that, and then and then doing incidental characters because all that grunt work of you know, there's a whole world populated. But some of the incidental characters. I mean, that seems like some of the. The most fun is that it's populated with such great faces, and mm-hmm. actually, that brings me to a fan question. Okay, somebody of the you know from the podcast, sure, uh, was wondering. Uh, one thing I wondered for years, and Dan may be just the man to ask, is if any of the characters were inspired by real people. For instance, Matt Hagen reminds me of Monty Clift, a, a famous actor that was disfigured in a car accident and a massive drug addict, and Rupert Thorne looks just like Marlon Brando. 
Yes and yes. Okay. Uh, I'm almost positive that that's the, the Monty Clip. I mean, Bruce is a big movie buff. I, I'm not absolutely positive that it's Monty Clip, but mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure he thought of that. Uh, I know that we, you know, on Superman, it's like, um, uh, um, what's his, um, oh my gosh. Uh, oh, wait, wait, it'll come to me. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, embarrassing. No, you, you're going to cut oh, this okay. out, right? I can get this uh, out. Um, uh, um, Metallo. There oh, okay. Because I'm thinking Cyborg. What? No, Metallo. Uh, Metallo, uh, th- his name is John... Corbin. Corbin. And Dexter was pr- presenting the design to Bruce and said, uh, um, Coburn, accidentally. And, and Bruce was like, yeah, let's make it him. And so, and so it ended up being Flint. Basically, we got the design because of, of somebody misspelling, missaying his name. That's great. And, and so it's like, yeah. But, I mean, there's also things like um, Daggett's loosely based on, um, on Baron Mordo. From from Doctor Strange. Oh man! Yeah, if you look at his features, he's, he's a little wider. Yeah. But it's like in the hairstyle and everything. It's a it's a Ditko. He looks like a Steve Ditko That's character. So cool. I mean, I always uh, there's there's some incidental character that looks like Ernest Borgnine. That I, there was like a gorilla character that I that, uh, I was always yeah. That's we were always looking at. At, at old movies. Yeah, where were you? You were just pulling from old movies, or just yeah. were there any people that you knew that you you know would slip into the mix or friends, family? Uh, well, we occasionally ourselves. I mean, Bruce was the toy collector in that one episode. Right, the, beware the, the gray ghost. The gray ghost. But what's funny is his name is based on, on an amalgam of Ted Blackman and John Dimer, so they just made him Ted Dimer. But Bruce actually at the record he he he. There was a way I used to slap my head and go oh when I get excited about something and he made the character do that so he's like my, my homage to you Dan <laughs> you are also in that character as exactly. well exactly so it's like he's got my mannerisms that's so cool so for people who don't know like what is the process of designing a character let's say from start to finish in like oh, a boy what's, what's the short version the short version of what at that time because yeah. it's different now at that time you know you, you look at a script and you kind of go okay it's supposed to be this kind of thing and 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 you would come up with oh there you go it's like a like like something like this and you'd show like a pile of, of, of faces to Bruce and you kind of go which one is what's the and you know and now you're kind of working things out and then he'd circle this and then you kind of go okay we're going in this direction or you point to that one and go okay we point in that direction and this is kind of where the thugs in the Riddler episode were kind of loosely based on that and I don't remember if that was wh- how who I based that stuff on. Um, is that Riddler's Reform? That's Riddler's Reform, yeah. So, um, and then there's this also Riddler's Reform that the toy, the 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 the, um, the owner of the toy company. Oh yeah, um, he's so great. Toys, and I kind of loosely based him on the money guy from uh, from Monopoly. So. You were designing characters. Uh, you worked and and Mignola, like he worked on Mister Freeze. Were there right, any other right. characters that he uh, helped out on? You know, I'm not sure if he took a stab at Man Bat. I'm not sure. I have, I don't remember seeing it. I know that there were more than one character that he did. I think, but but the Mister Freeze was pretty much his. I mean, that's that's a classic Mignola looking head in a jar. He was actually pretty tickled when he saw it because he was he's uh, <laughs> like. Ah. That's the one I did. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So from there, when did you get started uh, boarding um, or, or direct, directing? Directing, because even then I was I boarded a little bit for mostly cleanup stuff on uh, the Laughing Fish. 
there was a board that Bruce uh, didn't didn't like a, a freelancer had done, and the way that they had to to schedule things right, you know, there was like the directors had a certain number of episodes, but then Bruce and Eric had to direct uh, like two episodes a year mm -hmm. and use all freelance work for that for those shows. So one of them was um, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? And Eric did that one, and I boarded a bit on that. I boarded the first act on that, and then. Um, and then for Bruce, uh, the Laughing Fish, uh, he ended up. Ronnie, I think, boarded a little chunk, but pretty much Bruce boarded the entire show. He he boarded the whole thing. Man, so that climax especially looks so well, good. What what ended up happening was he couldn't possibly clean it up in time, so he did. He boarded everything, thumbnailed or, or rough boarded the whole thing, and then he cleaned up the Act Three, and the rest of the show. Uh, the whole crew like grabbed like 10, 20 pages and huh. we went through this like late night like binge of, of all these people like dr cleaning up you know 10, 20 pages each. That's it, fun. It was really fun. It was, that it was, episode it was is a way I for everybody to have a little bit of ownership in the show. It was really fun. One of the best. <laughs> and it's, it is phenomenal. It was really, really it's fun. It's my favorite Joker episode. Yeah. And there are a lot of good pretty ones. Pretty much. But what, what I love about it too is that it's, it's, it's uh, Paul kind of cracked this story problem with um with with the laughing fish comic because it didn't have a payoff and and by stealing the ending of the joker's five-way revenge which is a wonderful story i love that comic that that was like the return of the joker neil adams denny o'neill yeah oh my gosh but but the idea of like sticking the shark in there and just like making it all loop together it was like brilliant paul just seeing connections that you know, well, and I feel like that's what really works see. about the show in general is that it feels like the most iconic version of Batman because it feels like every good version of Batman with its own unique take on yes, it. Yes, yes. Uh, and that's like, you know, kind of the microcosm of it in an episode. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not identical. I mean, it's pretty close uh, plot point wise in some ways, but it's, right. it's still its own beast. And, and, and even like the whole idea of everybody sort of waiting around for the Joker. It's what's he going to do? Is he going to kill this guy or not? That's like so classic. That's like from the first appearance of the Joker. Yeah. Pretty much. That idea of all the police sort of all trying to protect some guy that the Joker's supposed to kill. And that's classic. And it, it also just, I feel like that episode struck such a good balance between the Joker being scary and also funny. Yes. yes. And, and it never felt like one yes. or the other was, you yes. know, like tipping. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> so good. So good. So you yes. you then started directing episodes. And I started directing. What was Dick, the first Dick episode? Dick left the show. And uh, I don't know what, I, it's just he wasn't used to, you know, I, I guess he just didn't, he felt... Like he didn't want people telling him. I don't know. I don't know what his situation was exactly why he left. But he was very kind to me because you know he he helped me transition. And uh, Kevin again came to my support and lighting. Everybody there was sort of like, well, Dan has done this before, and Kevin could vouch for me. And he's like, you know. So all this conversation was going behind my back. I didn't know that suddenly, like the door, you know, I get called into Bruce's office, and they're like, hey. You know, Dick is leaving, and we think you can do this. Mm -hmm. You know, you've directed before, and it's time for you to try it again. And don't worry, we have a nice safety net for you, and we'll all we'll 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 take care of you, and make sure it's you know the transition is easy, and you'll figure this out, and it'll be fine, and we'll we'll help you. And I was like, sure. So the first episode that has my name on it was um, the Zatanna episode. 
the, the board wasn't quite finished yet, so I kind of helped finish up the board on mm-hmm. that, uh, fix some problems, and try to make you know some 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 little fixes here and there on it. And so that's the first one that has my name on it. Um, then, but we were doing layout at the time, and that was really difficult. Um, a lot of the layout artists had never worked in something like this before. They they were used to working at Filmation or some other kind of place that was used to more of a library. Uh, they were used to more muscular characters. When you say library, do you mean like there's a library of poses that they would Absolutely. pull from? Absolutely. Because it was much cheaper. Absolutely. It was the only way you could do it that right. way. It, you know, the kind of full animation. That this you, is like He-Man kind He-Man, of stuff. Exactly. The, the, exactly He-Man. And so people were used to drawing more muscles, too. Just bulking them up. <laughs> and so you'd get these drawings of Batman where it, it was like all the muscles were old. You know, you're like, no, it's not the style. <laughs> and, and, and one of the guys was just like, oh, so you want me to draw it bad? like... They just didn't understand the show <laughs> at all. It was like completely different aesthetic. So, uh, so uh, the directors had a lot of work redrawing layouts. That's really. I imagine a lot of it like uncredited, just kind of oh, like yeah. you're burning that's, the midnight oil your, sort of thing. That's exactly what you're doing. And and um, and so I ended up getting a bunch of the stuff from the virtual reality show. Um, what is reality? What is reality. And so I kind of came up with the way that the that the Riddler split up. I did that in layout. Oh that was, yeah, that was, that was my contribution to that. Not, That's not so cool. Like kind of that gloopy drew, clay. Yeah, yeah, I drew that in the layouts, and that actually I have a, a cell from that episode that is just that. Well, <laughs> it's one of my favorites. I, I, one of the weirdest looks. I came up with that. That's so cool. So, so that that's the thing. It's like there was like a vague version of it in the board, but it wasn't spelled out. So I had to like really kind of draw it out and how it kind of how that would work in the board in the, in the layouts. I remember when I saw. What was it like the final Matrix movie? I was like, this is what is reality. Exactly, <laughs> that finale, exactly. I was like, no, I've seen this in a Batman episode oh, already. The, the, Wachowskis. The that, that I would do as a director. Let's see, wait, wait, wait. Uh, the, um, the, the, uh, I came up with that. Oh, that's uh, clucking. This is, so, oh, this was for Time Out of Joint. Time Out of Joint. So I came up with this timing and, and, and how to do the smears for when he comes in and out of... Yeah, what we're looking at is speed. like uh, basically like a one, two, and three... I don't know, it's not a pose, but... That's exactly what it is. It's a pose. But, uh, and so what I also did testing on a... We had a video camera thing, and so I, I'd actually do it with color, colored pencils and markers, and I'd cut them out out of paper and, and do like simple animation to test the timing. And we figured out not only that these are the way the, the smears work, but the... the um, but the percentages, because it has to be uh, DXed, double exposed. So it's like, that's 100%, and that would be uh, like 50%, and that would be like 20%, and then this would be the explosion that would pop out. That, it looks you know, so cool. That episode and that's how, is wonderful. That's how that worked. It was that simple, and it's kind of based on on um, the, the Chuck Jones uh, Dover boys have the smears, uh, the, the way the characters would smear in and out of anime. That's so cool. So that's that's what we were... I would freeze frame that and kind of study the timing on that. So that was that was what my, I did mostly as a director. It was like a lot of guys... Kevin was more like into the visceral story, and, you know, drawing all the... And me, I was kind of like the, the effects guy that wanted to, you know, crack... These kind of things, and figure out the timing on how to do the force fields and. But how it gave it such a, such a personality. So I was I was into like animation tricks. That's uh, so cool. 
Uh, I have a question about that, and I think I know the answer, but uh, when I was looking at your credits, there's only one episode that you're credited with Timing Director on, yes. and it is that episode, yes. and I was like, is this a joke because it's the Clock King, or just coincidental? isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Well, you know, we had really good timers, and, and that was... Uh, it, Boyd Kirkland tended to like to time his own things. He didn't like other people's timing on his mm-hmm. shows. So not only did he like doing his own slug... But he liked to do his own exposure sheets. Which, and what is an exposure sh- exposure sheet just for people? Yeah, I wish I brought them. Um, it, it, what it is is um, it, it, it initially like like in, in old animation, what it what it was for. It's for it's for a cameraman to to know what cells, how many frames the cell is supposed to be on, how many layers yeah. a cell is supposed to go on, and and so it's it's mostly information for the cameraman. So when they when they put the, all of the, the the artwork underneath what they know with how the sequence is going to go and that's you know animation, what ends up happening is that because we send the work overseas, that turned into a direction for the anim- overseas animator. So they would have the storyboard and the layouts and that, and they would kind of go by and figure out what the timing would be and how much to how many frames of an animation you know how that's you know. To make the animation, and it's weird because initially it was like an animator would do it, and then the exposure sheets would be done by the animator. And our process is in reverse because yeah. we we do the exposure sheets to tell the animators what to do. <laughs> and uh, and so Boyd would take a great deal of pride in doing that himself. So a lot of his shows have his own his own timing, uh, and a lot we didn't have time for that. That's like crazy. So I think. You know, we but we'd get them, and I'd I'd make revisions and and tweak that stuff where you realize, oh, the timing's off here. We gotta kind of, and it was all abstract. You'd have to kind of guess. You'd have stopwatch and kind of like guesstimate what yeah. the real timing is. Um, what I did, I don't believe I did a whole lot of exposure sheets on that show, but what I did was this stuff. Whereas this is the time. In fact, that is actually mine. This is my timing. This is this is I I, I apparently I did it I did it on the. The lockup show too. Um, this is this is a one foot mm-hmm. uh, and and uh, sixteen frames. There's the dialogue, and a lot of times you write down what the length is. I didn't have the the, the length at the time, so then it's like there's an eight frame. There's sixteen frames, which I don't know why I didn't write another foot there because that's what that is. That dialogue, a one foot eight, which is a second, another one foot eight. So it's all very rough time to like what the pauses are in between because you need to have pauses in between the dialogue, and and sort of. So that that's and what this looks like for people who can't see is basically like a Richter scale <laughs> with yes. with jotted notes underneath. So here's here is a timer. Continue dialogue one ten, and then there's eight frames, a little pause in between, and then another. Then there's the next line. Is this from so, Blind as a Bat? Um, I don't know. He's wearing a funny no, eyepiece. No, no, because he's doing a, he's doing an experiment. Ah, I welding can't even or tell something. You welding. Uh. Yeah. Well, why don't we dive into sure. you know we'll kind of use Batgirl returns as a way of talking about the yes. intricacies yes. of an episode. Uh, we can still talk about anything. Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, so that was the final episode that was produced in Batman the Animated Series, yes. right? Yes. Uh, and it's it's a solid episode. It's really great. I, I rewatched it this morning, yeah. and I, I always I loved it when it uh, you know when I was younger. Uh, I actually think it's one it's one of my favorite like kind of cold opens. Yes. That dream sequence yes. of uh, yes. you know Batgirl fighting off the Penguin. 
yeah. Two-Face and the Joker is one of the coolest. <laughs> yes. It feels like the opening of the animated, like the like show it, opening, it, but with Batgirl and all the villains. Exactly, exactly. What, what's neat about it, too, is that it, it is clearly a dream if you're paying attention. You know, all the things that happen in there, we don't really, like, sell it as as not real until you kind of look at the expressions and the animation is a little rubbery. It's a little more extreme. Yeah, it's even little... the shots, the way, like, Two-Face flies backwards. and right. The penguin is uh, using like an electric umbrella, yes, like zapping yes. people, <laughs> and and then uh, and and the way the Joker kind of gets punched and it, there's like there's a, like a rubbery quality to it that's a little more extreme and it's it's funny because it's in the board it's it's like Ronnie which we have drew, right in front of us Ronnie drew that kind of kind of loose and and extreme and uh, especially especially my favorite part is at the very end. Uh, where 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 uh, Batman becomes Dick Grayson? Oh, the transition the when transition. he starts. He's like, Barb, he wake up! Or... Exactly. <laughs> and you can see how rubbery, how extreme it is. Almost Mad Magazine, and that actually translated into the animation. It really looks well. great. It looks really really good. I so thought this one was it's, particularly it's, it's, well animated. At the end, yeah, I was like, oh, yeah. this felt like you got what you wanted. But absolutely, absolutely. Um, another one thing about that episode the overall it's like that it changes subject from the first part uh, that's fine uh, is there's a character called the chemist and I designed him initially because um, I, I always love Captain Marvel and I, I thought the, the idea we, we were thinking about having him in a lab coat and, and kind of like a like a mad scientist kind of chemist kind of thing and I, I thought of Dr. Savannah yeah and so that's you know I, I did that design, and then I, I gosh, I don't remember. Who. He's the guy on the stack deck with the huge, with teeth. huge <laughs> teeth. Yes, and it got exaggerated. I don't remember who did the final design. If it was Dexter, if Chen Yu was still with us on the show, then I don't know if Glenn took a pass on it. But I remember doing the initial rough for for Doctor Savannah, and that kind of took. That's so you know, cool. So you would so. sneak in other. I mean, this is obviously yeah. before you knew you were going to get to play around in yes. the DC universe yes. at large. So it's like, how can we sneak in these other characters? Exactly. So that was that was a fun thing. And the other thing that was really fun was that barroom fight. Uh, initially, the board was a little bit more... Uh, it was less abstract, let me put it that way. It was very kind of shown. Yeah, I love how silhouetted was, it was. And and I really wanted it to, to be something iconic and cool and mysterious and dark and, you know, and, and stylized. Um, so, and also... From a character standpoint, um, we didn't have that many bystanders to use. We only we had so many bikers that we kind of used from other shows and stuff, and so we didn't want to keep reusing the same people over and over again. So if we put them in silhouette, you wouldn't really notice. The limitation breeds creativity. Moment. <laughs> Absolutely, and and so and it looks better though. Like yeah, it's so yeah. cool. So I mean, this, this is my, my thumbnails for like when when he. When uh, Catwoman flips the, uh, one of the thugs in the foreground, I did this thumbnail for the artist because he had it in a really bland staging. And, and so I remember, you know, getting really, I was like, that's mm, not really, you know, it's, it's not interesting. And so I, 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 I did that. And, um, and then there was, where was the other shot? Um, and then there, there was... Uh, Actually, one interesting thing, too, during that fight scene, there's a scene where she throws a guy off screen and she does this cool little pose. And I found out later, uh, a friend of mine, uh, actually, um, 
was in Korea visiting the animation studio. He was working on his own project, and he knew somebody that was that was working on it. And he saw my name on it, and just like, "Hey, I know that guy. Can I can I animate a scene?" So he animated, and that friend of mine is Peter Chung. What? He actually animated, uncredited, completely, just one little sequence of that fight scene with Catwoman. And you had no idea had at no the idea. time. He was so just coincidentally on, there. I, I meet with him, and he said, hey, did you do this Catwoman show? What'd you think of us? Oh, yeah. It's one cool thing. I, you know, I did that. I did that scene. Just don't tell anybody. No, no, don't tell anybody. <laughs> I think yeah, everybody listening. Been, yeah, you know, it's a long time ago, so it's, it's, uh, I'm sure it's okay now. That's so cool. That's insane. Yeah, isn't that <laughs> across, the world, isn't that across the world that he coincidentally was able to do that. Yeah. Speaking of Catwoman, my cat yeah. has made an appearance. And now he's walking away. <laughs> um, so that was a cool little little bit of, of insight information. That's so that cool. Would, yeah. So Batgirl, I feel like in this, this series, especially before, you know, kind of the reboot or new yes. Batman adventures, uh, it was always very special when she showed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I feel like this episode was so... It was like a, a nice way to kind of wrap things up, too, because it was it felt like it was the right amount of campy, like, team-up, but yep. it still wasn't so campy that it was out of the world of the show. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I kind of, you know, because, again, it it also felt really spirit-like to me. Something about it just felt like, like even though, you know, they're girls, it just, there was something about uh, Catwoman and the way she's sort of conning Batgirl and, you know, that had that sort of playful... It was it was fun. It was really fun. I I I, I uh, the real caper quality to it. Oh yeah, absolutely. And yeah. how it all unfolded. And what I love is that it's a kind of one of those rare moments where continuity came into play, where Daggett is behind it, and they reference. They the Clayface episode, Absolutely. they referenced the Cat Scratch Fever episode, yep, yep, and it's not something yep. that alienated the audience if they hadn't seen it. But right. it was like, oh, that's a fun payoff. Yes. I, it's funny when I watched it again, though. I, I it, it felt very sort of the way we did it was a little bit on the nose, a little, <laughs> a little expository, uh, you know, where where it's like they're they're breaking in and she's like, oh yes, and that blah blah blah. Don't forget about that, renew blah, blah, you. Blah. It just wow, you know. I I wish it had just been tucked down a little bit, just a hair. If it just you know, I'm sure there would have been a way to to write that in a way that just didn't quite feel so expository, but it was still. It was fine. It was fine. And it's fun, though. Like you oh, yeah. say, it's the kind of thing that resonates to a viewer. So, no, it was the right thing to do. It was great. Also, I mean, Daggett has one of the best lines at the end where it's like, oh, what are you going to shoot Batgirls? Like, what are you going to do, dangle us over there? And he's like, yeah. no, I'm going to shoot you and drop you in the, the vat of acid. Yes, yes. And it's like, oh, that's the smartest villain it, in Gotham. Exactly. And I love that Catwoman is, like, perfectly willing to kill him. You know, it's oh, like, yeah. there's no, no compunction. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's fun. It was oh, really fun. It's so cool. They have that great motorcycle chase. Yeah. And uh, let me think the timing on this. When when did this come out? This was... Uh, when we made it... So I'm trying to think where in relation to the earthquake. Because I remember... The Northridge Quake? The Northridge Quake. Because that freeway in the, in the show was under construction. And I believe that, that when collapse in, in Santa Clarita, that freeway collapse... Um, we actually sort of referenced uh, the the visual, but I think it was yeah. after the fact. I think it was one of those things where we went, oh, we could have used that, you know, for reference. <laughs> it would have like, been great. Drive out to the old... <laughs> you know? I remember when that... I, I grew up here, so when that happened, it, everything, it was insane. Everything just looked... It looked like a wasteland. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, that did remind me of that 
kind of time. And I was I, like, I I'm wonder. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that we were. That was after we were working on this after. Yeah, because that was the quake was like ninety two or three. No, no, it was ninety four. Ninety four. Okay, so then yeah, 94. this was like what, yeah, a year or two after yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's so. Um, yeah, yeah. That's that's the thing when I saw the episode. Oh, yeah, that. Yes, that jump. What went into direct? Well, what goes into directing an episode? Maybe using Batgirl Returns kind of well, as a template. You know, in a case, in this case, um, you know, I, you 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 talk to your board artists about what the what the script's about and what's you know, and 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 try to make sure that you know at the time you get you get the backgrounds ahead of time. You get a little meeting before, so that you're you're they they can board off of stuff. A lot of times you don't have that, so you have to kind of make stuff up while you're boarding. Or, or you work in conjunction with the with with the artist doing the backgrounds to try to get it put in place so that <laughs> when you're drawing something, it'll be on the screen. You know, yeah, and we don't have to wait until designing everything after the board is done. So it's it it kind of works, you know, together. Um, uh, and and so um, you have those meetings with the artists where you're kind of you know discussing the storyline, um, and. And I kind of let people board. I let them do their thing. You know, I don't, I, I don't thumbnail too much and let you know tell people hold their hands. This is Ronnie Del Carmen. You don't tell him what to do. <laughs> you 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 just let the magic happen. And and then what you do is you you make network notes and little tiny timing changes, which is like you know the note I made here is to make sure a guy gets kicked in the chest instead of the face, <laughs> you know things like that. And there's some things you might have to edit for time, and but there's nothing you don't you don't you know tweak it you know and butch the same thing it's like his stuff was solid there wasn't really anything that was overtly wrong with his storytelling you just kind of make sure that the proportions he tended to draw larger more more amazon type women and bad girls not an amazon and and so you just want to make sure that his proportions are are right for the style of the show that was my one concern with, with butch on this particular show uh-huh. And then the other uh, artist was kind of a little bit more literal and slow and stuff in terms of the storytelling was more um, just old fashioned and not not as more like a like a um, straightforward comic strip as opposed to like a film like yeah. we're making. So that's where I'm doing shots where things are in the foreground, the background, and stylizing the characters in the in the bar, um, that kind of thing to kind of give it more more impact. And my concern with this show in particular was that Batgirl should be cute, and I wanted that kind of liveliness to it. So I made sure we got uh, copies of Owen Fitzgerald's work uh, where he drew a comic uh, backup in a Bob Hope thing called Liz. And um, he's done a lot of comics. He's a wonderful artist. And uh, Liz is like just just gorgeous poses on girls. And it, it, he's a really a wonderful artist. Owen Fitzgerald. And he worked in animation as well. Um, so we made copies of the stuff. And I made sure that the artists looked at it. And sometimes they didn't quite understand Um you know what? Why? Uh, Ronnie didn't really need it, <laughs> and 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 Butch's stuff was beautiful, so it was fine. But you know the other stuff, I kind of wanted to make sure that it was playful and fun, and that was my concern. Was mainly that second act that it'd be cool. 
Um, and I th- we pulled it off. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know? I mean, it's it's just so much fun to watch. <laughs> uh, it, it's like a light episode, but still like just keeps you going. Like no matter what, it's always clipping. Yes. Yes. Uh, and um, yeah, yeah. No, it was it was it was a, it was a blast. And I know you know. Initially, we're like, "Wow, it's the last Batman," and there's no Batman in it, except for the right. He's one. just there in Paris. He's uh, there in Paris, you know, talking on the phone. Wow, wow, which is funny. As Bruce Wayne, he's not even dressed in the Batman costume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is funny because then he and Wonder Woman go to Paris in the Justice League episode that was like practically oh, that yeah. same apartment. You know, it's like, and I, I wonder, Bruce knows a great place. Yeah, yeah, because it's like <laughs> that view of the Eiffel Tower was like, hey, that's the same place he went to in the. There's something very thematically appropriate, though, about like this being the last one before it kind of expanded to a Bat Family show, because this was very much about the supporting characters. Yes, exactly. Which was so cool. Uh, Yeah, we always love Batgirl, and um, yeah, it's funny. I saw my my first fan uh, uh, at a convention who saw my name tag and told me this was his favorite episode and he just went on and on and told me oh my gosh it's the best episode ever oh my god it's so wonderful and I was like when are, when are you going to come back and are you going to do Supergirl are you going to do Supergirl it's like well no actually we're working on Batman Beyond right now he's like oh I hate that show <laughs> I love the, the, so, the bluntness of a fan so that was it it was like oh I love this I was perfect I was like here's a pedestal no no <laughs> yeah. yeah don't get too comfortable because <laughs> I hate that thing you're doing now so <laughs> yeah exactly Except that people love Batman Beyond. So they do now. It's great. See, but it's weird back when it then, happens. Back then it was a transition. Well, I remember even, you know, I was nervous about it. Like, as a fan of this show, I was like, oh, what's this going to be? And then yeah. it was great. Yeah. Uh, some of the, I love all the darker sci-fi Absolutely. stuff that you Absolutely. can get away with. Well, that's a whole other conversation. But it, it yeah. was a good, that was, that was, we'll talk about that someday. Oh, yeah. But, uh. Well, I have one more question sure, 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 from a please. fan. Answer, answer. Uh, while we talk about them. the animated series. I love series. all the fans. <laughs> As for Batgirl Returns, uh, which I read on IMDb that the character of Roland Daggett was at one point going to be Max Shrek from Batman Returns. Is that the case? Wow. Uh, the Max Shrek was the if, character. If it is the case, I, I'm not party to that. I wouldn't right. know. I mean, it, it was originally it, it like supposed to in, a, in an outline of some sort that might have I, I may not have gotten hold of that outline. That was probably something in the writers' rooms. Uh, it's possible. It's possible. I know Alan liked to tie in with the movies more. Um, you know, he he named the Joker you know, Jack Napier once in a in a in a thing, and and we were kind of like, no, no, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> we got to make it our own. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was the thing. It's like uh, the, the Joker shouldn't have a name. So it's possible that that could have happened. We did get tied to the movie world in the sense that the Penguin was originally going to be the original Jack Burnley design. And, and, Top, and like what he kind of ended up looking like in the new Batman exactly, Adventures. Exactly. And and we had been told, no, 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 it's got to be, it's got to be the, the, the Batman um Returns, uh, you know, Danny DeVito version, and uh, and Catwoman also. Uh, originally, Bruce had short black hair on her, and and it was no, no, no she's got to be blonde. It's got to be Michelle Pfeiffer. So it's like okay, those are small concessions. Which is funny because Catwoman looks different in the animated series, but then in yes. New Batman Adventures, she gets the short black hair, but then looks more like Michelle Pfeiffer on the out. Like the yeah, I know, huh? it's like they switch they completely. Switch, they switch, yeah. <laughs> And, and the reason, uh, you know, to some degree, why, why there was actually no problem with this. We, we didn't complain at all. Bruce never 
that any kind of got to do this. Not really, not really, um, because Tim Burton is really was our kind of. <laughs> I don't think mentor is a big word because he wasn't he wasn't involved in the show in any capacity. But what happened was that the people at Warner's at the time had no idea what to do with animation. They had no idea. They'd been so far away from animation. They didn't even know what they were doing back when Schlesinger had the studio. They had no idea what a cartoon should look like. And and when they saw the designs, they didn't know what to think. They looked at them and went, well, I, I guess. I guess they're good. I can't tell. I don't know. Yeah. Is this good or what? So they showed it to Tim Burton. Well, you went to... You know, you worked at Disney. You're a CalArts guy, and you know you're doing the Batman. What do you think? So they're great. Let these guys do it. He became the biggest cheerleader for 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 Bruce and Eric. To That's do fantastic. Show. That gave us a lot of clout. Yeah, Tim Burton gives you the thumbs up, then you're. Exactly. Well, that's very cool because it's, you know, he using that kind of power to be like, hey, trust the artists <laughs> to do what they do really, really well. <laughs> and, and that, that exactly. That's exactly what happened. And, and we were, you know, so there was always the sense of like, you know, we owe it to Tim because he helped us out in the beginning kind of. So yeah, that's so fine. cool. So if we're supporting the movies, fine. No problem. So if you can believe it, Dan and I continue to chat Batman on and off mic for another hour after this. So... I think I'm going to save the rest of our recorded conversation for next episode when we'll dive into a rapid-fire discussion of every episode he ever worked on on Batman the Animated Series. And that is not including his extensive work on the new Batman adventures, so he'll definitely have to come back. But for now, we're going to shift gears to... Today's fan. Rustam's a buddy who happens to be an immensely talented artist himself. He's the art director of Guillermo del Toro's upcoming Netflix animated series Troll Hunters, and has also worked on shows like The Strain and Game of Thrones, ever heard of it, and films like Frankenweenie. Also, just Google his name and check out his work. His stuff is awesome. Uh, it's quite fantastic and probably up all of your alleys. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's get to chat. Like Einstein notes. Uh, yeah. Well, this was before I actually watched the episode for most of these notes. And I was just trying to remember what was happening. And then I saw the episode and I was like, wow, none of this stuff is in here. Like, it's like, it's like I imagined a lot of the stuff, but it's still there. But it's just very, very, very on the surface. And I think a lot of it is like the context is actually provided in earlier episodes, if you just watch the one episode, you don't always get all the context. Yeah. When you, when you watch several and then you see the one, you're like, you understand that character already. And then when it all comes together, you see all this sort of like subsurface, like subtext stuff come in that makes adds uh, a lot of depth to those characters. Yeah, they do a lot with very little. I feel like they're yeah. very minimalist with their storytelling and their right. character. But like somehow that makes it feel more iconic. Yeah, it's like we're only we're gonna hit the major beats, right. but you, they they do such a good job that you're like, okay. I mean, at the end of the day, they only have twenty minutes, and that's like to do a full story like they're doing. They do very few like continued episodes, so to do like a full story in twenty minutes, that's like an art form in and of itself, and yeah. you have to sort of you can't say everything, and that's why I think like the design is so smart. Like, how they suggest things visually is really smart. And that's a lot of why, like, you admire the show, right? Oh, yeah. 
Uh, where are you from, by the way? So I'm from Magnetogorsk, Russia, uh, which is a factory town, a very industrial factory town in Russia. It's kind of in the middle where the Ural Mountains are and the Ural River and where they cross, if you have any idea where any of those places are. It's kind of like in the middle of nowhere, like kind of like coal mining industrial town. Podunk, Russia? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. But yeah, it's very Russian with like giant statues of men working or men shooting guns <laughs> <laughs> or like trolleys everywhere. Uh, so yeah. When did you move out here? Uh, so I moved here 1996. So like middle of Batman the Animated Series. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's so, how you contextualize your life. <laughs> well, yeah, actually that is exactly it. Really? Like, cause I didn't really get into watching it until like a year after we moved. Cause I didn't, I couldn't even understand what was happening, but sure. yeah, like I think I went to school for like a year in America and then we realized we legally, I can't be in school. So I had a lot of, uh, like I dropped out of school, <laughs> middle school at this yeah. point, And I had a lot of spare time to just watch TV and stuff like that. And they constantly had reruns of Batman on all the time. And at this point, like, uh, when I was in America, my only experience with Batman was that I saw some bootleg Batman toys in Russia, which I thought were still really cool. Yeah, um, of course. If that's your introduction to it. <laughs> right. Yeah. They're really bad toys. Um, but on the back, they actually had pictures of the real toys. And, what um, a tease. I know. And it was like, God, where did I get these? Like, it, it looked so cool. And, you know, a lot of those were very conceptual because they would have, like, Batman in an underwater suit or, like, Batman in a space jet, <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. Like, toys that you would never, were actually never in the show. But it made me, like, want to watch the show so bad. And, of course, there were the movies, too, which I actually never saw until I came to America. Uh but I saw like snippets and stuff like that here and there. And I just thought it was so cool. And it was like my dream to watch like a Batman movie. I think like one thing that's really kind of hard to get for a lot of people, like when you're in another country, you don't really get like the official releases of anything. Everything is bootlegged, especially in Russia. There's only like few cities that officially had that kind of merchandising and stuff like that come in. Most people would get that kind of stuff. Like, first of all, you'd have like six like Russian channels. And once in a while, you'd have like a public access type of deal when, where they play some Cartoon Network shows. Like, oh, someone so like just, they would just bootleg it and show yeah, it. Yeah, they would their like someone show. in America would tape Cartoon Network or like MTV or something like that and they would play it on public access. Huh. So that's like the only way you would ever see <laughs> anything American. And then later on, they had more of like a actually, like I think maybe like a year or two before I left. They had like an official channel where they had um, international programs and they actually did like real voiceovers and stuff like that. So for me, I, I knew like ElfQuest and Jurassic Park because those were the only like comics that were translated to Russian. That ElfQuest like, is such a weird specific. Yeah, I know. I think it's just because it was very, very popular internationally. Yeah. There's some, some things like you hear if you live in America, you're like, why? What? What? Is, why is that the thing that's popular? And it's really weird. But ElfQuest was just really, really popular internationally just because I guess people, it's easier for people to understand those characters like all over the world or something. I think maybe it's because it's non-specific to a place. So that really helps. And then there's Spider-Man, the TV show, which was like what, the first TV show. The 90s show, one? Also. The 90s one. I loved that one when I was a kid. I absolutely loved it. That was like, they actually in Russia, they were selling videotapes with real uh, voice acting. 
uh, actually dubbed into the with the show because before like if you get a like a bootleg videotape first of all the quality is horrible um, and then second of all the voices there's no voice acting it's all one guy doing the voice for all the characters huh. and in order to do that they make it very monotone so the guy does like this kind of thing and goes it's very like they used to do it's that weird. as like radio plays on records. Like, you know, there'd be one guy and he would yeah. play like everything from like, you know, the scorpion to the little girl being kidnapped by the scorpion. Yeah. Like a Spider-Man record. Right. Yeah, that's that's kind of what they did. So, um, but then when I came to America, I kind of took, you know, at that point, Batman the Animated Series, the original, was you know that that's been playing since 1992 and i think at this point they already were working on the new adventures which is like the sleeker uh you know bruce tim's style was already like fully worked out Mm -hmm. and it was very very bold much bolder than it was in like the first season of the animated series so that was really exciting for me so i kind of took the original animated series for granted because it wasn't quite as crisp and smooth and I think sometimes even like the backgrounds the whole dark deco kind of feel to it the backgrounds like some of the characters get lost in the backgrounds like it's not quite like as crisp and figured out as like the new like is this called like the new, new Batman new adventures, Batman adventures. Yeah. yeah so that was very crisp and I saw that I was like holy crap and then the Superman stuff came out around that time too and then there's just all kinds of spin-offs started happening yeah so, and it just spiraled out right so I never quite saw like all of the um, original animated series stuff because there's really really no way like this is before to anybody that's like under 23 this is before any like you could go and like illegally download stuff or things were like available on Amazon or something like that so like you couldn't just go and like I guess I could buy the tapes but I didn't have any money <laughs> like, and also the tapes only had like two episodes right per yeah. tape and that yeah. was it and that was what you were stuck with like I right. recorded them off of the TV with the VCR manually and right. paused it for commercials. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. and then I would just save them and like categorize them. Yeah, for me that was like the show that I watched like all the time. Like, I was really excited to come home. Like, I think they played it on Saturdays and then mornings, and then also in the evenings, like after school. So, like, any time that I had to watch that stuff, that's the show that I would watch is the Batman show. And I like Batman like way more than Superman. So that's the one that I was really into. Uh, so yeah, there's definitely like a special place for me for that whole show, just because. It, Everything about it is perfect. It's such an anomaly that such like such a great creative leadership was built around that whole show, and it just worked out so well. And you know that's something I took for granted too, because when I started watching that show, I was like, okay, everything this is amazing. Like everything's going to be this good. Like all of American cartoons are this good. Right. You and then like the high mark. Yeah, totally, like- totally. And then I just, it's so disappointing to find out that gradually that everything else sucks <laughs> like you know like a lot of other shows just not as good yeah um so yeah i definitely that's the show that i remember very very clearly or as clearly i could but that particular episode the batgirl returns episode yeah. is one that really sticks out in my mind too because it was very unique 
That was the final episode of that of the third style season. of the animated series. Yeah. yeah, right. Well, really. Yeah, that was it. So, so the fourth season, they started doing like they, they had kind of a new aesthetic. Yeah, the new aesthetic took over. It was new Batman adventures. So it's it a bigger, broader. Right. So the fourth Batman. season is considered the new adventures. Then. Yeah, new oh, Batman. I see. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Same <laughs> continuity, but like, yeah, that was so. This was like the transition, not even transition, but right. it was just like the final episode. So wait, I want to dial. I want to. Oh yeah, yeah. Go sorry, back. I'm talking too much. <laughs> no, no, no. You're not talking too much at all. I just want to give like uh, listeners a background on like what you do now. Sure, also. sure. Uh, so I don't even know what your official title would be, but I like designer, illustrator, uh, artist. Yeah, like <laughs> designer. Uh, right now, I'm art directing on a show. Yeah, that's a, so. that's the correct title. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. So yeah, it's very much within the same vein in terms of we're trying to hit the same audience uh, as, like, the Batman animated series. So, like, kids 8 to, like, 13, 14, something like that. So it's, it's you know, it's an action-oriented show for boys. You know, looking at that show, just seeing how they visually represented the story and um, made things really obvious that, you know, you don't necessarily get to say because you have very short dialogue you can't you can't do a whole long monologue when uh you have only 20 minutes to tell the story so yeah. for for us we're constantly thinking of like how can we get more story in there with uh the backgrounds or the props and stuff like that and um that must be really fun for you as like a at least like a design puzzle <laughs> right no it is i think especially for us it's a little bit trickier too because we're a 3d show uh and that's quite different than are you allowed to say what show. it is I can say what it is because it's been announced, uh, but I can't say anything more. Great. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, the show I work on is Troll Hunters. It's a Guillermo del Toro um, created show. Uh, and I think that's pretty much all I can say about it right but now. But you worked with Guillermo before, right? Like, Yeah, I worked with him. It was one of my first gigs coming, coming out of school. There was a Pinocchio animated stop motion film. Oh, I didn't know that, that you worked on that. I was yeah. thinking of The Strain. Yeah, well, that was way later. <laughs> That's so um, cool. Your first gig was working with Guillermo. It wasn't the first gig, but it was like one of my first gigs. Uh, I worked on a show called Frankenweenie, which is a Tim Burton film a long time ago, and the production supervisor uh, on that kind of like had an in with um, the Jim Henson studio, which worked with wanted to work with Guillermo on this Pinocchio project. Uh, so I kind of jumped from Frankenweenie to Pinocchio. And uh, worked on that for a while, and then that kind of got lost for a while, and then uh, Guillermo wanted to pick it up again, and then uh, it got kind of subdued again. And I think he still wants to do it, uh, just finding the money for um, stop-motion film. It's such a, it's such a niche thing, uh, especially if it has like dark overtones and stuff like that. It's really hard to find money for that kind of stuff, but I probably shouldn't be saying that much about this either, but... Uh, yeah, and but this one, I'm actually really surprised that it's getting made at DreamWorks, uh, and it, it's going to be really good. But yeah, it's again like I, that's why I was so excited to meet Dan because uh, you know we're really trying Dan to do, Reba. Dan Reba, yeah, and uh, who worked on the same floor as me on Dragons, uh, How to Train Your Dragons TV show for a while, and uh, you know that's why I was so excited to meet him because we're really trying to do a similar thing as to um, what the Batman animated show was doing and uh it's really great to hear like a lot of stuff on this podcast and uh to hear all these stories from dan to 
Uh, see, like, how did that happen? Because it's such an anomaly. You know, like, the more you see, you realize how much other shows that try to go for that kind of audience, for, so that, like, dark, more mature tone, how much they don't work for some reason. Like, they just don't um, grab the audience as much. Um, well, because it's not only about, like, the darkness. And I feel like sometimes no, these not. shows are like, we just got to make it dark. Right. And it's like, no, yeah. you still have to. It has it. a lot of, like, really fun campiness to it. It's got a lot of humor. Yeah, this like, episode in particular is yeah, more totally. of a like, humorous, like, light adventure Yeah, yeah, episode. definitely. Um, I think, you know, even Batman is not that dark. Like, you know, I always remember... Uh, when I think about the show, it's much darker than it actually was. And actually rewatching some of the episodes, you realize this, they had a lot of fun, like just making, making it a fun show. And there's a lot of humor thrown in along with like the dark stuff. So it's actually not that dark. Um, but you know, I think if you're working on a TV show, that's constantly something you're being scrutinized for. Um, because you know, TV show, animated TV show, you're generally trying to appeal to young kids and if you do anything uh, dark, if you do anything with violence, uh, like romance, it's constantly being scrutinized by, you know, uh, producers and executives and stuff like that. So it is really difficult to figure out how to do that well without, like, messing up the integrity of the story and the yeah. characters and the depth of the characters, which I think is a lot of the strength of the show is the depth of all the villains and, um, you know, not just the main characters. I think this show, like what makes this show really, really special to me is that a, it's a villain centric show. Batman is almost like not the main character. He like, only has a the, few episodes yeah, where he really is in the spot. They get into the, who is Bruce Wayne? Who is Batman? Why does he do the things that he does? And I think that's key to making the show work and making all those relationships work. Um, I wonder if that was a carryover from the Burton films, just because it feels like that Michael Keaton Batman was so much less the focus than like it was like Jack Nicholson as the Joker mm -hmm. was like such a huge like he was totally the star of that yeah, first one. Right. Totally. Uh, and then like, you know, Penguin and Cat, like you were excited about the villains. In yeah, those movies. for sure. I think it's definitely something they must have talked about. Like, I can tell you, like, from being in the room where some of those discussions happen, it's not something that happens by accident. Someone has to be um, sort of orchestrating that and mm -hmm. saying like, well, I think the brilliant thing about that, the Tim Burton's movies, Tim, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> the Tim Burton movies did and that the animated TV show did is that they didn't just, they didn't focus on Batman too much because I think you know, to a certain degree, you have to have the clarity, especially on a TV show like this where you only have 20 minutes, that, you know, this is the good guy, these are the bad guys, right? Uh, but at the same time, the show is very ambitious in establishing that um, we had these bad guys that had a lot of depth to them, and they had a lot of, like, backstory, and they had real motivations for why they are, like, very psycho um, psychologically charged characters, right? Like, every character is sympathetic, Um you know, like, it's pretty rare, like, um, that any of them have, are just goons, you know, like, I think maybe, like, Killer Croc was kind of like a, he was just a goon, he yeah. just looks different, you and know, even he just the looks first one, weird. like, well, even the Killer Croc, before they, like, redesigned him, like, he had some, mm -hmm. like, pretty empathetic, what was it, Sideshow, the one, I don't know if yes, you saw that I one. I did see that one, that was one of the ones I rewatched recently. I guess he, he is kind of the asshole in that He's one. He's totally, but in that particular episode, then those characters become 
the sympathetic characters. It yeah. becomes more about those characters. Batman is just kind of there, <laughs> you know, like yeah. he's just there for the fight scene. But all of the interesting emotional um, story beats happen with Killer Croc and the other characters, right? Yeah. Um, and I think there's really a good reason for this um, because I think if you think about the appeal of Batman is, you know, you think about like how complex that character is. And how, you know, again, he's got a lot of psychological problems, you know, like, and he's a vigilante. And, um, you know, if you think about who he is uh, and how similar he is to the villains, like he's an observer, you know, like there's, there's a reason why all the ba- backgrounds are so dark and he's always like kind of looming, like he's almost like a blob and you just see his eyes. Mm-hmm. He's always in the shadow. You know, that's done on purpose, I think, to characterize that who Batman is. And to me, uh, Batman is an observer. He's always kind of lurking in the shadows. He doesn't attack the villains right away. He's sort of observing them and making decisions like he's trying to figure out who they are. So every character, every all of these super rich, like interesting, charming villains are constantly being scrutinized by Batman and the audience, you know, in turn. You never can like just come up to on the villain and just like, okay, here they are doing that bad thing that they're doing again. Uh, you get a lot of backstory. You get a lot of like, you know, they say those key lines that just kind of give you an idea of who that character is. Um, and I think coming back to this episode, I think the thing that is uh, really interesting is the fact that it's a sidekick based um, episode. Yeah, Batman. Like, it's just Bruce Wayne is standing yeah. by the, the Eiffel, <laughs> Eiffel Tower. Tower. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Which is really interesting because I think the sidekicks almost serve the same purpose as the villains do. Is they're sort of there to distract distract you from uh, Bruce Wayne and Batman. Because I feel like I still feel like if you get too much into who Batman is, he loses a lot of that complexity. Well, he loses he, the mystique and yeah. the appeal. Well, the thing I think to me, the thing about Batman is he's. You know, it's almost like a lot of this mystique is generated. It's almost like falsely generated because he's not actually that complex. Um, But if you make it like they've done a really good job of playing it up like he is. And they do that by, you know, not playing into him too much because you've got all these characters, other characters to be entertained by. So it has to be uh, villain centric and sidekick centric kind of show, you know. Um, yeah, and if, with that many episodes, you don't really want to explore the same character over and over exactly. and over in, in yeah. children's cartoon. Yeah, because really, he's he's. I think once you establish that he's this, like he's just as damaged as the villains, uh, you lose kind of like lose a little bit of sympathy for him because you realize he can't really work through his problems. He has to put on this mask and cape in order to deal with you know his. Um, his memories of his, you know, him like failing in some way to protect his mother. And he's really punishing society just the same, like for their inability to save his parents, the same way that the villains are punishing society um, in, a, in that way too. Right. So yeah. I think uh, once you establish that he becomes not that different from the bad guys. And I think that's something you kind of want to avoid, you know, in a TV show like this, you still want him to feel like the good guy. You don't want him to be like, out just torturing people like where he, there's episodes where he'll straight up like torture like 
crooks and stuff like that and you still want to feel like yeah but it's okay because he's the, he's the good guy right know? because in the same episode later the guy he dangled over a roof he's like you know uh bruce wayne gave me a job <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right. Oh, like, yeah yeah but also they're like that sympathy like that's what i love about this batman we've talked about mm-hmm. it a little bit on the podcast but i feel like this is the most sympathetic like human batman yes like yes. he i think because he is damaged like those people he wants to reform them before right. he just fucking knocks them out and yeah. throws them in jail like he, yeah. he wants them to re, be rehabilitated right. which is and, more noble than you know <laughs> yeah man we totally see totally yeah ex- yeah especially i don't know if <laughs> people are going to probably see the uh batman um superman where the batman's apparently i haven't seen the movie but yeah, apparently he's very very uh not like the Batman in this show. <laughs> so, um, well, I feel like that's pushing a trend of like, okay, dark night it more was extreme. really dark. Let's push it even farther. Yeah, which you know, I think I get it. They, I, I you know, I get it. It's 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 an aging franchise. It's been around for a long right, time. It has to change. So you know, you want to experiment and do all these things and to order in order to re- renew the character. But I really think uh, the animated series really nailed the relationships. To Batman, uh, his relationships to the villains, his relationships to the sidekicks, his relationships with Alfred, and how those characters act around Batman and stuff like that. Like, you know, Alfred is another one where I'm like, I hate that Alfred is like the wise old man in all the other movies because I think for me, does not work at all. I think he's an empathetic character that's there emotionally for Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as you make him like, oh, he's like lecturing batman all the time where he's making him he's giving him a lot of wisdom and stuff like that i think that character starts to kind of fall apart because that's not the batman should be and bruce wayne should be seeking out like going out into the world and looking for that he shouldn't be allowed to come and ask that from alfred yeah then well, right away time, like, yeah alfred is family and employee at the right. same time which yeah. is a very weird dynamic but like yeah. they toe the line here pretty well yes yes and i think as soon as you break that too much and you make him too much of a parent or you say oh batman's like a badass because he's or not batman alfred is a badass because he was some sort of secret agent or some bullshit like that that i think like for me that doesn't quite work like you know um yeah. <laughs> well, because they're supplementing a parental role when like yeah. Batman needs to not. Have yeah, exactly. That. But I, I like you know I like that he's I like that he's quippy. <laughs> yeah, like he's pretty. Well, much I like for the quip. I love Alfred because he's kind of a doofus. He's not always like you see a lot of like humorous him taking on humorous roles. One thing I thought that was really interesting is that how uh, promiscuity is sort of um, associated with the bag the villain the female villains in the show so like poison ivy harley quinn and catwoman are all very somewhat promiscuous uh you know in their tone when they're interacting with batman or they're straight up like seducing men or they're somehow attached to a man in a romantic fashion so i think all three of those characters like the three iconic characters are that way and uh one thing i sort of like i remembered uh batgirl was not nearly as promiscuous as any of those characters so it's like right away you sort of establish that you know kind of like um 
sexuality sort of is almost like evil. Sexuality you know? like, is bad right. and being a good girl. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is so good. which is which totally makes sense and that's largely inherited from like the comics and like the 60s show and stuff like that, right? Well, I wonder if that's even like that that I hadn't really thought too much about it. I mean, it's there, it's present, mm-hmm. but like even the beginning of this episode is Batgirl fantasizing exactly. about making out with Batman yeah. and that's her like I kind of want to be a bad girl. Then she teams yeah. up with, but like she exactly. doesn't do it in real life so yeah. it's okay. Right. So, which is the thing that I forgot about. I totally forgot that she had that scene in the beginning. And I'm almost thinking, like, it's there specifically to remind you that she's still, like, a girl. And she does sort of, like, she does have, like, sexual urges and she does have, like, desires and stuff like that. Um, And it's almost like they don't want that character to appear completely cold, which I think, again, really humanizes that character. She's not not just uh, a good girl. She can be like um, she can kind of toe the line between bad and good too, which I think really humanizes the character, and I think it's like essentially what the episode's about in terms of Batgirl. Um, but I don't think this episode's just about Batgirl; it's also about Batwoman a lot. Or Catwoman <laughs> or Cat? Sorry, Catwoman. There, there is, is a, there is a Batwoman. There is a Batwoman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It really is. I forgot how much it was also about Catwoman. Mm-hmm. I always thought it was like a Batgirl episode, and Catwoman was kind of on yeah. the side. But I was like, yeah. no, this is a straight up team up episode, right? And it's about Catwoman like manipulating her. Yeah. And, like you want Catwoman to be good, and there's always that moment where right. she turns, and it's like, nope, I was yeah. betraying you. Yeah. No, I love that. That's why you love that character because she is so like sneaky and manipulative. Uh, and you know that's that's why you love that character. But it makes her strong. That's the it cool does. thing. Is like she's like, yeah, okay, I'll follow your rules, but literally. Well, <laughs> the cool thing about it is that at the end, Batgirl knows she's been tricked, but she's totally fine with it. She's totally cool with it because she respects. Like initially, when she first sees uh, Catwoman, she's like, "Oh, you did this. You're just nothing but a criminal," kind of thing. And then at the end of the episode, she's like, "Okay, I've been had. Like I've been outplayed. Like she has." Um, she has respect for the more mature, uh, more like, um, like the veteran, like crime fighter yeah. slash vi- villain Catwoman, which is like I love that. And she's like, yeah, let's not catch her this time. Like, let's just let her go. Uh, there'll be another time where she slips up, and then I'll be prepared to deal with her. You know, that kind of thing. Um, which to me is great. Like, which makes Batgirl so much cooler than Robin, who's whining yeah. about letting her go. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's my whole hesitation with the. Um, with the sidekicks, because I always like when I was younger, I just didn't understand why the sidekicks were even there. Because I'm like, uh, you know, Batman's always like saying like I work alone, like that kind of stuff. And then no, nope, here it goes. He's he, now he's with Robin, and now he's with another Robin, and now he's with Batgirl. Uh, you know, it just kind of doesn't make sense, but it, it does kind of make sense in the terms of uh, you know, again, you can't get too much into Batman, and um, the sidekicks really provide a lot of the distraction. And also, you know, they do have, like, this one is a unique episode because it's focused on Batgirl and Robin and Catwoman, and Batman's not even in it, which is great. And it is focused on that, like, female relationship, which I think is really, really the interesting thing uh, about this episode. Like, you know, and, and like, when I was remembering, again, I, I told you this earlier, like, I remembered there was, like, twice as much dialogue as there actually was, but a lot of it is really suggested in that, um, you know, you just really see how manipulative Catwoman is in, in that, uh, you know, after, during their second encounter, when uh, Batgirl comes and meets up with Catwoman, um, she s- starts to flatter her. And she's like, hey, uh, 
you know, you got some good stuff. Like, you know, I think we should team up because you're great, you know, kind of thing. But, you know, of course, the whole time she's just planning to... She's working. Yeah, her. <laughs> she's working or she's totally working her over. And uh, Batgirl's totally buying it because she does have that naive um, college girl, like... Um, feel to her right and i think again that is the purpose of the intro uh dream sequence to sort of establish she is still like a young girl you know i think you wouldn't be as sympathetic with her if she wasn't you know uh that's what makes her different um that she's still like kind of learning the ropes and Mm -hmm. stuff like that and it's imagining that she's fighting like the top three batman yeah she's totally kicking her asses yeah no that's great and I mean, right away, you know that it's a dream because there's no way she could be able to do that. Also, you don't... her hopping on the penguin is one of yeah, the funniest things. That's he lets great. Like a, Ooh. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, that's so funny. Penguin is so funny, like, in any episode. I love that guy. But anyway, What do you love about him? I just, I just love that he's, like, a pretentious, like, Englishman. And he's not, like, he's not as gross as he was in the movie, like the Batman Returns movie. He's totally, like, there for... Um, you know, com- comedic relief sort of thing. You know, like he's just—I just think he's like a funny, pudgy. Uh, I-, I love his like sh- almost like Shakespearean like monologues whenever he does anything. Right. Well, he so always funny. wants to appear smart. Right. And yeah. that's and it's so obvious that like you know he's like a lowbrow dude trying to appear above what he does. Right. Right. <laughs> which and, is always funny. And, and he is like smart in some ways because if you think about like all the stuff that he has to do. Uh, you know, he's not, he doesn't have superpowers. He doesn't have anything. He just has his umbrella, <laughs> you know, so he has to manipulate the bad guys around him and he has to make gadgets. And in one episode, I think like he trains a bird <laughs> to like go and like bite like a vulture to go and like bite Superman or not Superman, Batman and stuff like that. Yeah. Which is pretty impressive. <laughs> like, yeah, honestly, consider how wrangling much, skills yeah. are insane yeah i know to train a bird to be that obedient it took him (laughs) a year and a half right yeah Uh, he worked with somebody from the animal actors show universal studios yeah so like if you consider how much effort it actually takes to before you could get that bird to go and like commit crimes for you that's pretty impressive yeah pretty impressive um yeah but anyway back to this episode yeah back to batgirl so Um, just she is this version of Batgirl to me is even more interesting than when the style changed. I feel like she became a just more of like a sidekick, like sidekick. Mm-hmm. Like there wasn't much of a like story to her. Yeah, well, that's why I love this episode because like literally the thing that we're talking about, you see so much character development just from point A to point B. She like sees this other character, she's observing her, and it changes her. Um, changes her mind. She's much more mature at the end. It's like She's like, well, I don't need to go and kill all the villains and get the guy in the end, but I learned something, so that makes me stronger. Like, I've absorbed some of the strength of this lady character, um, you know, by just respecting her and seeing how she makes her decisions. Yeah, and, seeing another strong woman, too, which is also, probably important. Also, in the end, when she's tempted by Catwoman, because Catwoman is Batman's equal, physically. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, by the end... Uh, Batgirl sees that Catwoman is uh, smarter than Batman in some ways, is in that she doesn't have all these moral quandaries to sort of hold her back in a way. And also she's much more, she's really good at manipulating people in a way. She respects that until she says, until like Catwoman says, oh, like that uh, silly Commissioner Gordon kind of thing is like, ah, none. And then I think in a way, uh, Batgirl kind of respects herself a little bit more because she didn't, fall for it again right she she 
she resisted the temptation to team up with this very, very uh, alluring, charming, and she straight up like hits on her. She like like the way she like like uh, puts her hand to her yeah. face, like straight up. Like I think I don't know if, how clear this is, um, but I think you know the first Catwoman episode is she's got like an assistant that lives with her. Yes. So to she does. me, just in that one two part. Right. And to me, like that episode suggests that they're lovers. Cause like in the end uh, of that episode, like I forget what that one's called. It's the first episode you see Catwoman. The cat and the claw. Right. Yeah. Right. The claw, the one where the claw shows up and Captain Janeway voices her. Yes. Yeah. It's it great. Is. It's a play yeah. red claw. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another lost character. <laughs> yeah. She shows up again in one oh, Alfred she does. episode. There's oh, okay. one where Alfred is a spy ah. and it all takes place in like, okay. You know, I don't London, remember that and one. And then she's the bad guy. Yeah. But, but she's not that interesting. I got to watch that one. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I thought like in the end that, that assistant, uh, I forget what her name is, but she, she tells Batman like, Hey, she has a crush on you kind of thing. And I feel like to me, you would like, it's kind of weird when it happens in the episode, but like thinking back on it, it's like, you would only say that to a competitor for this person's affections, right? That that's the only way that line makes sense. So, like, that's another way. Like, they're sort of providing subtext without like going all out and saying that they're lovers. I don't know, but you know, the way she's sort of trying to appeal to Batgirl in this episode, to me, it's almost like she's trying to seduce her uh, before Absolutely. she before she, like that's like her. Uh, like, she's even trying to use it with Batgirl. But because Batgirl, like, doesn't swing both ways, and she's obviously attractive men, she can't interact with Batgirl the way she would interact with Batman, who is kind of, like, somehow somewhat swayed by her. And he, like, Batman is attracted to Batwoman in a way that, like, Batgirl can't be attracted to her. So I well, think that's that, usually why Catwoman gets away. Right, yeah. Well, he does catch her, like, at the end of the day, like... Batman is like, well, it's the law. I have to uphold the law kind of thing, which is funny because he is a vigilante too. Um, but Well, that's what I love about Catwoman is that she always brings out the hypocrisy right. of Batman. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, yeah so, so we're both kind of the same. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm exactly. just confident in doing what I want right. to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and in that way, like Catwoman, she punishes society the same Batman way Batman does, but she almost punishes uh, like the gluttonous... Um, aspect of society she's always like she's not stealing for money she's stealing for thrill and like um you know she doesn't need the money (laughs) like she doesn't want she's not interested in money she's interested in the thrill of it and she's interested i think in this particular episode she is like get some satisfaction from getting uh Revenge on Daggett and all that stuff. Oh yeah! So I love that Daggett is the villain. Yeah, I love that they yeah. bring back. He's such these... a throwaway villain. He's completely like I feel like he's completely irrelevant. Although they do bring up like the whole backstory, which I wasn't aware of, and I completely forgot about this. That he experimented with some chemicals on her, which I've never heard before. There but were I guess a couple that's... episodes. There's one where I think he like yeah, I he's, like those. doing an animal you know, trafficking kind of thing, mm-hmm. and he kidnaps her cat. or like, Right, right. I for, cat scratch fever. But then he's also the guy behind Clayface in the series. Yeah, yeah, like, totally, totally. Which is, you know, I, he, whenever he shows up, he's, like, ancillary and important right, at the same yeah, time. Like, yeah, but again, I think he is sort of, like, even in the Clayface 
story. He's sort of just there as like, that's the bad guy that instigates this, but Clayface is the bad guy, you know? Yes. Which is a great bad guy, too. Right, he's always brother. pushing people into doing the wrong thing. <laughs> right, right, great, which is fantastic. You right, know, yeah, that's the little that. devil that's like, you could make this choice, but yeah. you can also resist it. Well, you don't want to distract from the main, you know, cream of the story, which is uh, Batgirl and Catwoman. Um, that bar fight is such a fun scene. Oh man, that's so great! I love it. It's so great, and she's just straight up dominatrix uh, in that whole scene. One thing I think it's kind of uh, interesting to point out is uh, I was watching this with, like, I was rewatching this episode of my uh, beautiful fiance, and she pointed out, "Cool friend and great comedy writer." Yeah, Lauren, Lauren McGuire. <laughs> yeah, I guess I should have said that. <laughs> no, I mean, I it's, it's weird hey, for I you to keep have this... to say her full name. <laughs> yeah, I want to keep this about me, all right? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, I'll edit, yeah, I'll edit yeah, Lauren yeah, out yeah, this entirely. Get rid of her name completely. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But anyway, um, she pointed out that the bra size of Catwoman is insane because she's got a <laughs> tiny rib cage and big boobs. And I, I noticed her, like, I went, went back and I noticed the boobs change, like the scale of the boobs change to like when she has to be very athletic but in that bar scene they're way bigger really way bigger yeah and it's like i didn't realize this but she pointed out that like bra size is not just like how big your boobs are it's also like rib cage size which i did not know did you know know that either no i know isn't that crazy i learn a thing that's very basic (laughs) to you know uh a woman i'm i feel like an idiot because i'm like oh like i of course yeah that makes sense i thought okay (laughs) this is so crazy like i don't know if we should be discussing this so like showing how ignorant we are to like (laughs) this kind of stuff but uh i guess i always thought that cup size is just based entirely on boob size and then the strap was just sort of like well it's got like levels and you just kind of shrink it down yeah it's like a hat right yeah it's like a hat and you just get whatever size hat you get but they actually make the cups separate from the bands and the band is there for the rib cage and the cup is for the size of the boobs. I mean that logically makes perfect sense of right course, yeah yeah because that's how they manufacture it but like so when you say like you've got a d it actually has to do like someone could have the same boob size but they would it would be a different size because uh the strap uh doesn't fit the rib cage the same way so she has like definitely has d's because her rib cage is tiny uh, compared to those boobs, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. honestly, that was really kind of would have gotten a breast reduction surgery in real life. Yeah, for sure. Because I was be like, all those I know that's sort of that's my point was fucked. <laughs> yeah, but like you can see, like sometimes the silhouette is quite different. So they definitely that's the benefit of having a two D cartoon sure. is if you want it to. Uh, make her more voluptuous, which they do in that particular scene. Because, like, when she's... They're totally playing up that oh, whole like dominatrix that, like that thing. Weary, like, that big <laughs> yeah. guy that she, like, grabs. Yeah, the well, there is a guy that, like, uh, kind of cat calls her earlier. Yes. And she, like, like whips him up, right? And that was a pretty uh, cool part of it, too. But they're totally playing up the whole dominatrix thing. Yes. Uh, which is great. <laughs> I think everybody I mean, yeah, she enjoys must that. be. She's got a whip yeah, <laughs> that she, she does. uses all the time. Here's my question. Um, the 1960s Catwoman outfit, which is very similar to this outfit, uh, except it's not, you know, leather. Uh, but do you think... They just looked at a dominatrix outfit and said, that's our Catwoman outfit. Just put cat ears on it. Or do you think 
people saw that and they just equated that with uh, the look of a dominatrix. And that's just what you know that a dominatrix looks like. It's just like a fan, full spandex body tight suit. So which came first sort of like... I've never thought thing. about that. I always assumed... Yeah, I guess I... I wonder if it came... From, I'm sure Catwoman has influenced that. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. Sphere of sexuality. Sure, sure. Hugely. Yeah. Interesting. Well, we'll have to dive into the history of <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Um, and I, you know, speaking of suits too, uh, I really like... This is a beautiful episode because I think this really makes... Uh, the the characters really pop against the backgrounds. Like, the, I think the last ep- like episode I remember Batgirl was in was the one where you establish Batgirl, right? Yeah, Shadow and it's, of the Bat. Yeah. Two-Face, two-part. Right, and her outfit was a little darker in that one, but this one, it's much more colorful. It's uh, It pops more. It's much more reminiscent of the uh, original 60s at, um, costume, which I think is still great. God, that 60s costume. Yeah. It was fantastic. also, you would, I would like clap when I saw that she was, like, because you wouldn't know if Batgirl mm-hmm. was in the episode until the end. It was right. like, and Batgirl! <laughs> and then you'd see her as part of the theme song, and I was like, right. yes! Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this this version of her feels like that version. Yeah. It was like yeah. always special when she showed up. Right. I yeah. like this costume a lot. I think I liked it more than the redesigned one. The redesigned one looks good, but mm-hmm. there's something like very... I don't know the grayscale of it like works for me. I think too like there's been recent new versions of Batgirl because she's had her own like uh, comics line and stuff like that. Sure. And I think it hasn't been like that updated. I think people are so attached to that particular look. Like if you stray away from it, it doesn't. It just looks too far from it. It has to feel happy. You know, like I feel like if you make it too dark, it doesn't quite work. And also it, you know, sort of. you're stepping on Batman's toes if you make it too dark, because he's supposed to be the one that's kind of like lurking in the shadow kind of deal, you know? Yeah. Whereas sometimes he's straight up just a silhouette, you know? I think their role, you, you notice that uh, these sidekicks, they don't do that as much. Yeah, they pop because, with color. They're yeah, there in the light yeah. a little bit more. They're, they're not meant to be as complex and as shadowy and mysterious as Batman is, which is, you know, again, like really great decision to do that. Yeah, I'm curious. What do you think about the directing of this episode? Since we we did talk with Dan about mm-hmm. it, uh, and you works in animation. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you see that maybe uh, like just somebody who watches it casually wouldn't see? Like, was there anything that popped out to you? Hmm. I think all like most of the episodes were re- very well directed. The vehicles, I wanted to point out, the vehicles yes. are really cool. Like, because they straight up uh, take a really thrilling, romantic uh, bike ride on a really cool motorcycle. Which is, by the way, like, I don't know it, like how often we see bikers in Gotham, but they straight up go to like a biker bar kind of thing. Yeah. So I thought, you know, the bike design was really cool. I love all the de- like vehicle designs on the show because they have a way of drawing them and designing them that makes them like fun to draw. Like for me, like, cause for me, like I'm, I don't do a lot of, uh, vehicle drawings. I don't draw a lot of cars and stuff, but these, like, I look at these shapes and they're just, they just look like they're fun to draw. Like I want to draw them cause they're so like rotund and beautiful and the proportions are so well made because it's got that art deco feel to everything and it's consistent in the vehicles. Uh, and even like the police vehicle, the big police vehicle where they're taking away all the the red one, where they're taking away all the bad guys. It looks it's, like a big loaf of bread. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Opens up. Yeah, no, I love it's that great. design. Yeah, it's, it's like fantastic. A, it's a small thing, but it like really is satisfying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it just 
just so simple and iconic and it, it works really well. And, it, you know, that that's there in the bike design, too. It's it's just like very simple, like chunky. Uh, yeah, it's great. So love that stuff. Um, yeah, no, it's a great it's a great episode. Definitely one that I remember very vividly. And it was so long ago that I've watched like all the episodes and that one really sticks out. So that tells you something about just the level of understanding of those characters. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. <laughs> that was fantastic. It's so fun to talk about this stuff. I know. It's a great excuse. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's I don't know. It's like I always try to find people that want to discuss this kind of stuff like this in depth. And for me, it's super This is fun. all I like to do. Yeah, yeah. So anytime, <laughs> on or off yeah. mic. All right, another one bites the dust, as Queen once said about Batman the Animated Podcast. Please rate and subscribe and comment on the show in iTunes and donate on patreon.com slash podcast. It helps keep things free and up and running, and there are cool rewards available like original art, stickers, vintage Batman pogs, opportunities to be on the show, and more. So check it out, patreon.com slash podcast. Follow at BTAS Podcast or at Hey Justin on Twitter for updates. Email me at BTASpodcast at gmail.com. I think I've told you every place you can find me on the internet. Batman the Animated Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by me, Justin Michael. Tom Smith created the show logo, and Casey Triela helped produce the theme song. Harry Chaskin is the voice of the podcast, and thank you to my guests. They were awesome. A big Batgirl thank you to This American Life producer, Tori Malatia, who I recently told and swore on my life that I loved Batman vs. Superman, to which he said, If you're lying to me and I find out, you'll give yourself up. So I just gave myself up. All right, guys, I will see you next episode. I haven't seen Batman vs. Superman yet.